0: Revelers. I'm going to do, just do a quick intro today and a longer outro so please stay to the end and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kaladi's own Mark Overly. Welcome to Revel Revel. Thank you.
1: Glad good to be here.
0: So, I am Lauren Drabble, and today I have with me Mark Overly, who I know from Kaladi Coffee. Mm-hmm. A lot of times on the podcast, I ask people to say how they know me, and then I thought, that's not really fair, because <laughs> <laughs> we literally just met once. So, I'll give a little introduction okay. of how I know you and uh, you can add to it. You can make corrections, whatever, because my memory isn't great. I have no idea how I found Kaladi coffee. All I know is that the first time I went in and I was talking to the barista at the counter, the one um, you know by DU, right. they found out it was my first time in and they said, well, here, you know, what do you think you want? We'll give it to you on the house. Right. And I tried it, and I was like, oh, man, these guys know that they are crack dealers. Yes, they have Yes, yes. All I know about business, I learned
1: peddling drugs in high school.
0: Uh-huh, yes. So I tell everybody about how great Kaladi is. I don't promise that they'll get a first free one or anything. And... I take people to all the different kaladi places if, if, you know, we're traveling around Denver to, to show them around. And then we met because I loved your product. I wrote to you and I said, hey, I'm having this fundraiser and can you give me some coffee? And I thought I'd get a bag or two. And you were generous enough to give us a year worth of coffee. I know we're just crazy that way. You are. And then... I don't think we had any contact again until I was looking into taking ownership of the existing independent bookstore here in conifer and i wanted to put in a, a coffee bar right, right, right and i said if i'm going to do this i want to do it the Kaladi way right and so i contacted you and you said well come on down and you gave me a tour at the new facility oh, this is, okay was that the, okay yeah. yeah yeah it was it was before the broadway facility opened up right
1: yeah because we did the roastery first and then slowly eased yeah. into the bar
0: any of this sounding familiar <laughs> Yeah,
1: yes, yeah. sadly doing something for so long, everything does kind of create go into a blur. Yeah. Yeah, luckily I'm a one-trick pony, so uh, it all sounds familiar because that's kind of how we roll.
0: So you say you're a one-trick pony. Yeah. So you've always been into coffee? Well, for
1: 30 years.
0: Wow. Yeah. So how did that all start? Uh, like a lot of like a lot of life,
1: it was kind of a uh, serendipitous Bumping into a, a friend or be, becoming friends with uh when I was in Alaska with a young man who had started a coffee business with his partner, and we I, I started kind of helping them out, and their their partnership was their relationship, and the business was their baby, and they were splitting up, so I ended up with the baby, as it were. So I always considered myself the uh, step step parent of Kaladi.
0: Well, let's back up from uh, Alaska originally. Uh,
1: I was born and raised in Florida and moved to Alaska upon graduating high school um, because Alaska is as far from Florida as one can get. (laughs) And that's something I recommend uh, anybody from Florida is just get the hell out. So
0: I had gone up (laughs) there. Yeah. uh, I have the same issues with Florida, man. Yeah, yeah. Florida,
1: right. And was going to the University of Alaska at the time and working in a restaurant at night. And that's how I met. uh, His name was Frederick Sharon. And him and Brad, uh, his partner Brad Bigelow, had they had had come up from Seattle. This is uh, the mid '80s, and uh, had started an espresso cart on the streets of Anchorage. And about a year later, a friend of theirs convinced them to buy a a roaster, a, a small coffee roaster, and they started roasting coffee in their backyard. And then. Um, Bought a bigger roaster and a little, uh, you know, a little, put it in a little strip warehouse. And their idea was to try to sell coffee to restaurants and stuff like that. And then I was asked to come along because I was kind of a salesy kind of guy. And they wanted some help on that end of the business. And as I said, at that point, it was that magic six years into the relationship. And so it all kind of fell apart for them. Um, but as I said, I ended up with a uh, coffee business at age 25 and uh, had to figure out what I was going to do with it.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you are working at a bar. Yeah. And they were your customers and that's how you met. No, we
1: were working together. So oh, they were working yeah, in the Frederick, bar too. Frederick oh. uh, was a server at the same restaurant I worked at. Yeah.
0: And what part of Alaska was this? This is Anchorage all just happened to show up at that bar? Well, I mean, Alaska is a small
1: place. So um, <laughs> uh, it's and, it's and really to further heart. kind of promote this, uh, I ended up being friends with one of the former governors of Alaska, Jay Hammond. And he always said that if you lived in Alaska for 10 years, you would in fact know everybody. Wow. So, you know, and that proof of point by me saying my friend, Governor Jay Hammond, Uh, Right, You know, because you just, there's only, uh, I think I forget his exact quote, but he was, I mean, he said, you know, when you live here long enough, there's really only like 5,000 people who really live here. So if you live here 10 years, you'll know every single one of them.
0: Okay. I get how it all happened then. And you said it was serendipitous. Yeah. Yeah. And what does that word really mean to you? Is that the word that you like to use, as opposed to fate or coincidence or oh, whatever? You know, well,
1: I, usually, I will usually use that instead of uh, dumb luck, which is also the way I would describe it. Um, just depending on, uh, you know, if I'm trying to sound intelligent or not.
0: <laughs> so the honest answer is dumb luck. I was a
1: creative writing major, so you know.
0: So you're 25. You've got this business that sort of lands in your lap, almost like. Default. yeah
1: yeah and, and, and you know what it got down to is that uh, the fact is in the mid 80s nobody really cared about coffee and and the fact was is that the coffee that they were bringing in was quite expensive it was more than twice as much money as what other coffees would be and if, and if you're selling coffees to, to, especially to food service you know being twice as much money as your competitor is is not a good position to be in uh i always used the kind of an example of the restaurant i worked in which i'll i'll leave unnamed Uh, for this very reason, is that I would say at the restaurant, you know, here at this restaurant, we only use the very best, unless, of course, we come across something a little cheaper. (laughs) And that's kind of the restaurant business. So I remember when I first met them, they said, you know, we're trying to do this. I kind of looked at what they were doing. And I thought, you know, this is this is kind of stupid, because uh, restaurants are not going to pay this kind of money and you're just some little you know little roaster and honestly who cares it's coffee you know what's the big deal but what had happened later in the year they they had a, a booth at the state alaska state fair in which they served espresso drinks and that was also my introduction to espresso was helping them out at the uh, at the state fair and we only served like it was lattes cappuccinos and mochas and we made mochas from nestle quick
0: oh my Oh and,
1: my! <laughs> um, it was a piston espresso machine. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those piston machines where you pull
0: the lever down. Yes. Kind of like a Guinness tap.
1: Yes, exactly. And from about an hour before the state fair would open to an hour to the state fair would close every night where we had to take a four by each sheet of plywood and say the line stops here, you would be nonstop. So, you know, in the, uh, the year that I met them, I think they had a total of $110,000 in sales for the year. And 60,000 of that was the 10 days at the state fair. Oh, wow. So it, it was just like, what are you guys doing? You this, the rest of the year, you're, you're wasting your time. And it, well, I'm the idiot that ended up with the, the business. But what it taught me was that while there may be no room in the coffee world, uh, I could try to just focus on espresso. And that's honestly what the Alaska business was. We were an espresso company. And even to this day, I, I, um, I'm more of an espresso person who likes coffee, and that's kind of how our business is run. Up in Alaska, 75% of our roasting volume was espresso, the espresso blend. 10% was decaf. 15% was everything else. Here, it's 60% of our volume is espresso blends. uh, Still 10% decaf and, you know, 30% everything else. So that still kind of applies. We're an espresso roaster who roasts coffee.
0: So I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to any of the other episodes and I don't want to tell you how to answer this, but I want to give you a little bit of guidance. I want to hear the weird circuitous manner. Don't give me the straight shot. Okay. Uh, what made you leave Alaska and come to Denver or was there even somewhere in between?
1: Uh, there, there wasn't it. Um, again, uh, we'll, we'll use the word serendipitous we had, the, by that point, this is 1998 and 1999, uh, the company had, that, by that point in Alaska, grown to be the largest coffee roaster in Alaska. So suffice it to say, my strategy of focusing on espresso was the right one. Of course, uh, along the way, Starbucks came along, so I can't take credit for them. But we
0: Ooh, have, we won't use yeah. that word if we don't have to, okay. Well, I
1: love Starbucks. Because okay, tell me why. Them, without them... Uh, there would be no us. So it was Starbucks that made these espresso beverages mainstream. And that is what fueled the market. And uh, we rode on the coattails of Starbucks. So without Starbucks, there would have been no Kaladi. Okay. Uh, so, you know, the take the most circuitous route uh, in Alaska, I realized in the early days that I did not have the funds to become a Starbucks. But I could become a, um, a source for people who wanted to do their own espresso bars and coffee shops. So we focused on having all the supplies necessary for people who were looking to do, do that. And there's an old saying in Alaska, if you want to make money in a gold rush, sell shovels. And that's what we did. Uh-huh. Uh, we are an espresso machine dealer did espresso machines, uh, espresso coffees, did a training. Everything was focused on helping people to do that. In fact, we in Alaska became the second highest volume uh, espresso machine dealer in the country. Hmm. And we were second only to the dealer who had all of Washington and Portland, Oregon for their market. So, I mean, we were selling We were bringing in espresso machines at one point by the truckload uh, because there was just none none there. Well, this all uh, expanded very, very quickly. Uh, The company grew very quickly itself. We ended up opening up a number of our own stores. What it kind of got down to is that we had become the Starbucks of Alaska because I was convinced that they were coming. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was already another coffee roaster who was established coffee roaster there and they had the grocery store accounts and they had the white tablecloth restaurants, so they already had the market i I essentially had to work around them and i was concerned about if starbucks came we would be the number three roaster Mm. and you never want to be the number three brand right right because what's the number one uh, hamburger restaurant
0: mcdonald's right
1: and who's number two Burger King and who's number three who cares
0: right I'm like I, I would be guessing for sure right who cares right
1: so I was afraid of being number three and so I, I very aggressively grew the company up there so that we would be you know at least number two but Starbucks didn't come didn't come didn't come and we ended up being number one and by the time Starbucks did arrive, we already had all the prime real estate we had the name recognition. And so they—it's the only market, uh, only metropolitan market where Starbucks is number two. But along the way, it too is a beverage retailer, not a coffee place. <laughs> and as I got more and more into coffee, the less and less my my company was interested in coffee. Hmm. So uh, we had gotten to the point where we felt that there was no more growth really available in Alaska that we really needed to uh, op- you know, take over the United States. So uh, an idea was put in place to look for a a location to kind of start off with in the lower 48, as we called the continental United States in Alaska. And we ended up choosing Denver as our launching point because it made for, we already had a couple of clients that we were shipping coffee to, and it's very expensive to ship coffee out of Alaska. So we chose Denver as a place because it was kind of an easy, easy place to do distribution from. The downs. So that part was a good idea, but that was pretty much the end of the good ideas. <laughs> uh, the store was located in Park Meadows area.
0: Yep, I know Park Meadows.
1: Yeah, so very, very high rent. And uh, the neighborhood, I don't know if you know this or not, is the largest Mormon community outside of Utah.
0: Park Meadows is?
1: Yeah, there's even one of those... Mormon baptizing places there. If you drive down 470, you'll drive but you'll see this huge building. It's got the angel Gabriel on top of the thing. It's
0: actually it's actually the angel Moroni. Or Moroni, whoever Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's where they do
1: all their baptisms of dead people. So it's it's big enough to do um that. And, you know, nothing against uh Mormons, but they don't drink coffee. <laughs>
0: You know, and you know, it's funny. Everyone thinks it's a caffeine thing and it's actually hot beverages. Hot beverages. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, not a smart place to have a, a coffee business. And the store was losing a, a shit ton of money. So I'd come down to kind of see what was going on. And I looked at the store and thought to myself, this is everything our company has become and everything I hate about it. Oh, Wow. Is essentially we're not Starbucks. We've got a red goat. They got a green mermaid. <laughs> Otherwise, you want a Frappuccino? Yeah, right. So it was. It kind of encouraged me to to want to start over again. And I thought Denver was a great place to live, uh, largely because it has the exact opposite cloudy to rainy day or cloudy to sunny days that Anchorage. Mm-hmm. So we just kind of took a big leap of faith and decided. Um, my wife and I decided let's just stay here. We will sell, sell the business in Alaska and buy up the, you know, the assets for here and restart the whole place. And I uh, had found the location in DU, uh, but it was a year away at the time. So we um, put the money down for that spot, uh, tied up all the loose ends, moved moved from Alaska to here, and then essentially rebooted the whole thing. And then uh, that... that my experience in Alaska is a lot of the reason why Kaladi and Denver is the way that it is. And it's very unapologetically the way that it is uh, because I, I wanted it to be to stick with the vision I that I wanted and not be just growth focused. So.
0: So, yeah, it really comes down to location, 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 though, doesn't it?
1: It does. And, you know, when I looked at that area around, you know, when I, when I came here, I remember telling my um, then minority partner up there, who was also the CFO, I'm like, you know, what the hell? Uh, I, I battle traffic all day long until we get near the store in Park Meadows where the tra- traffic thins out. And then I finally come to the intersection where there is no traffic and that's where our store is. Hmm. Whereas there's a university right here in the smack of South Denver that doesn't have a proper coffee joint near it. Yeah that's where you should be. So uh, like I said I was able to, to uh, land that location and you know we started from there and, and there you go.
0: Well going back to your word unapologetic, I think that's one of the things I like best about the company and yeah, the pro- yeah. and the product is right exactly.
1: I make I do coffee that I like if you like it great if you don't plenty of other roasters around
0: right so can you go through your objectives of what you wanted that that vision that you saw
1: oh okay so as i mentioned you know we're we're an espresso company at roast coffee but i became quite interested in coffee so what about the same period of time as I was getting interested in coffee was the whole um, movement toward cooperative, organic and fair trade coffees. And I found that those were the vehicle for me to get to that kind of coffee quality that I was interested in. And so I began, I, at the time I was doing a significant amount of travel, uh, trying just trying to figure out what it was and that I liked in in coffees, and then how do I get it and keep it kind of a thing. So I kind of developed these different relationships in country that we could source the coffees that I that I was interested in, in bringing in, and then um, so in a to as an example or you know in a contrast in Alaska I only had a few different coffees that I could source that I would make dozens of blends out of. I would just kind of reformulate you what know, the blends are, and make it look like I had a bunch of coffee, but they were all blends. Uh, and people love the idea of blends because you know, you just name it after something exotic, and it, you know, there you go. Whereas here, I don't know if you've ever looked closely at the coffee board. Have you noticed how many blends we have
0: on the coffee board? Maybe two or three. Zero. Oh wow! Okay.
1: You have to ask for a blend. Oh. The only blend we really have is the espresso blend. But if you look at the coffee board, there are no blends listed.
0: Only single origins. And I just thought it was me just buying the single origins. I didn't really pay attention. Right, I guess. Yeah.
1: It, you know. And, and it's and it's just that's the way it is. We don't even you know. So we don't even offer blends. So, and that's how I went. I wanted to focus on the people growing the coffee rather than us as a roaster. I wanted to be transparent to the coffees itself so that when you find the coffee you like, you know, we, we essentially kind of treat it like a uh, way, the way I kind of looked at it is there isn't one best coffee, Mm -hmm, right? Each of us, each of us in our mind has an ideal of what we like in a coffee. So our job as a roaster is to offer a range of coffees. And then uh, when you come in, and uh, I don't, and it's, uh, hopefully maybe this was your experience, when you started asking about coffee, they began asking you questions as to what you liked, and then they matched up a coffee to you. And once you found that coffee, that became your coffee.
0: And do you train them on what questions to ask?
1: Yes, we're very uh, deep on that. That part of the of the of the training is to to ensure that so that they're selling. the, the goal is that they sell you what you like, not what they like. Mm-hmm. And in fact, during the training, uh, I'm the, uh, it's we will specifically sidestep that question. Uh, well, which one do you like? Which you know, and always kind of keep trying to get it back to there because. Taste is subjective. So what I might like may be very, very different from what you like. So our job is to find the coffee that you like rather than what happens to be our favorite coffee. Now, with that all being said, we have one coffee that that accounts for half of our sales of single origin coffees. And it's kind of not by mistake because we've engineered that coffee to be the ideal coffee. Which one is that? Uh, the Peru Andes Gold.
0: I love it, but I mean... Everybody does,
1: because it's engineered that way.
0: But, I mean, if I had my druthers, I'd drink Kona year-round.
1: Yes, yeah, 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 for $60 a pound.
0: I don't care. I just want
1: it. You want to know a little secret? What? Buy the Mexico, tastes just like the Kona.
0: Really? Yeah. The Chiapas? Yeah. I've had the Chiapas. I'm going to have to go straight cup to cup.
1: I know it's a dead ringer. In fact, it's so much of a dead ringer that uh, years ago, there was a huge uh, issue because one of the largest uh, Kona coffee producers, and exporters, was also a roaster. Mm -hmm. And so they were allowed to import coffee as well. But then when they started adding up the numbers, they were importing a lot more coffee than they were roasting. And Uh it turned out 90% of the coffee they were exporting as Kona was Mexico.
0: Wow. Because hmm. yeah,
1: it is, they are dead ringers for each other. So uh, I always call Mexico the poor man's cona because it's the it's same
0: flavor profile. Well, I will definitely have to compare knowing yeah. that now might, yeah. might change how I taste it. So let's go back to the questions that they ask and trying to get people to. Oh, right, right. Yeah. So... Because, because in my experience as a barista, people don't know what they like. They don't, exactly. People... And if they yeah. do, that doesn't mean that they can vocalize it.
1: Exactly. And they're much better at saying what they don't like, rather than mm-hmm. they do like. So, mm-hmm. you know, the typical thing is like, I don't like bitter and I don't like acidic. And funny enough, neither do we. So so what, what we do is we start kind of asking, begin asking questions on what kind of brewer that they have. Uh, do they drink the coffee with cream or sugar? Uh, asking different types of questions and kind of getting a sense of, do you like, fruit-forward coffees, do you like roastier coffees, that kind of thing will kind of nail it in uh, from there. The last thing that every staff person gets uh, during their training packet is a cupping session with me and I explain our strategy on how, how, how I buy coffee and how we sell coffee and, and then very much the way that people buy coffee. So we have customers, you can break coffee customers down, they're gonna kind of have three, three types for coming into our shop. Uh, The first majority of them, they know what they want. They're coming in there for their Perundes gold. I want my Perundes gold. Don't try to sell me something else. I just want my Perundes gold. Or Trieste Cafe, you know, the espresso Mm -hmm. blend. Yep. Then you have the other customer who wants to come in and just stare at the board (laughs) and read at every single thing that's there. And uh, all we have to do for those customers is let them know that the coffees are arranged from lightest to strongest. So they have some kind of moment um, from there and I'm, let them pick whatever they want. And then that third customer is going to be the one that's kind of like, well, what do you like? And then that's when we start kind of doing the, uh, uh, the questionnaire kind of thing where we kind of qualify the customer, what they're looking for, and then try to match up that. And I kind of use the same, just as you're saying, most people don't know what they're looking for. And I usually kind of use the, um, uh, my way of approaching it. It's like a person going into a wine store. Mm-hmm. and say, I want to buy a bottle of wine. And the wine guy says, okay, what do you like? And you said, well, I like red wine. And they said, okay, well, our Cabernet's, you know, red wine's over here. Do you want a Cabernet, Merlot, Pinot Noir? What are you thinking about? Oh, I want a red wine. I love red wine. I mean, the redder, the better. It cannot be red enough. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of how coffee people are as well. They just, they have a limited set. It, it's just as challenging for them to, for a person who's into coffee to try to find what they're looking for as it is for the wine person, because you're just kind of going, what the hell? And a lot of times, you know, coffee, coffee roasters and coffee uh, sellers are no help because they use stupid names. They don't agree on how to describe coffees. So uh, as you've probably noticed, we have a really specific way on how we describe the coffees on there and we will follow that all along. So once you've kind of got into our way of describing it, we'll always describe the coffee on body, taste and aroma, and it will follow that each time. So once you kind of, it's like, oh, okay, I, I kind of like this kind of, I like cocoa. I like, you know, I like, or I like, um, what, jasmine, you know. So you can start kind of following along that like, that's going to be interesting. And we're going to describe the coffees just as they taste, not trying to use a bunch of crazy ass marketing jargon to try to flu it up. So we're very that way we can, the customer can find what they're looking for because the idea is that, again, once you find the coffee you're looking for, you're kind of sold for life. And then our job from there is to make sure that coffee always tastes that way each time you come in.
0: So, yeah, let's talk about how the heck can you be consistent yeah. in that when you're doing open-air roasting?
1: Well, that's, the, it's those, that's because the roasters that we use, uh, as, you, as you've noticed, those things are ugly, they're loud, but they're in, incredibly precise. So they, they're accurate to one degree in roasting. And the, the flavor profile of a coffee is directly attributed to the final temperature it reaches during roasting. So my job as a as the coffee buyer and, and, and you know quality control guy is to make sure that I'm making those adjustments through the year. The roaster doesn't have to make those decisions. I make those decisions. And no matter who runs the roaster, so long as they put the correct temperature in, it will come out as I expect it. And then I you know, regularly taste the coffees, make sure everything's kind of where it, where it needs to be, making adjustments on a on a degree here, degree there, depending on if it's new crop coming in or if the coffee is starting to kind of get to the end of its crop cycle, and we're having to make adjustments to keep the flavor profile correct because that's kind of what's critical. And for our customers, they expect it to taste the way that they they've always it always tastes. And I have found over the years as we have as we have been able to more precisely narrow in those taste profiles, the more demanding our customers have become. So they will be the first ones to notice any variation in a coffee. They're also the ones that get pissed off at me if I have to make a change. If on a, you know, sometimes a producer arrangement doesn't work out and I have to make a change, they'll, they'll notice the even the smallest variations and this kind of thing. So what I thought would make my job easier over time actually made it far more demanding because we've kind of trained our customers now to expect it to be always exactly the same. So,
0: Right. You've trained us to be high maintenance. That's funny. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But again,
1: that makes you all the more our customer because nobody else is going to put up with you.
0: <laughs> <We will. laughs> yeah. That I love how you put that. So, okay. A lot of people talk about how you refine your palate, how you train your palate, you know, things like right. that. But for a guy who's constantly tasting different beans, I want to know how you don't have a law of diminishing returns.
1: Yeah. So a lot of it's because again, the consistency of the roaster. So if you can't replicate something, you can't improve upon it. Mm. So the roaster, the roaster is what has allowed that kind of uh, sense of this is what the coffee should be. If you, if your target is constantly moving, you're never going to zero out, right? And uh, that's it, it all came from the espresso blend because the espresso blend has to be perfect. And the challenge with the espresso blend is that it's different components that change each year to crop you know even even if i try to buy it from the exactly the same people it's going to change so my job is to take constantly varying components and have the same end result and it's and the espresso machine itself has a very narrow window of acceptability of what a coffee can can be so it it amplifies any type of variation to it and uh espresso drinkers especially are once they've kind of found their espresso and and once they kind of lock in, especially to our espresso, they expect it to taste that way. And it's really the espresso blend that made me the kind of coffee buyer that I am. And now in the case of the espresso blend, uh, what happens is when I get everything just right, I will squirrel a sample away and put it into the deep freeze. And if I get completely lost on a you know if something has gone completely wrong, I can pull out very you know blends from. 12, 13 years ago, that matter. I can pull back and make a cupping table of what I perceive to be ideal blends and reset my palate to make sure I'm... And then at that, by that point, I'll figure, oh, that's what I've done wrong. I need to fix that kind of thing. With the individual coffees, there's a little more flexibility in it, but there I have in my, in my mind ideal profiles that I'm looking for. And there are certain flavor profiles that I've learned over the years that customers, coffee customers respond to. So my job is to try to get those different kind of profiles and have them on offer. Occasionally, I may lose coffee and have to go looking for a replacement. And the important thing is, is I'm replacing the profile, not the coffee. So I may end up in a completely different country to get to the profile that I'm looking for because I'm, that, that's when, so I'm, I'm looking at it backwards. I'm not, I know a lot of coffee cuppers and a lot of coffee buyers that just kind of go out with a, a, a blank palette and say, let's go see what I can find. For me, I'm, I'm out there with a mission. I'm looking for specific profiles. And if I don't find it, I just move on. And I'm not interested in a lot of weird variations or the next new thing. I, I'm looking for the things that, that appeal to me, and that I think appeal to our customers.
0: So I think the most fascinating thing to me about all of this is you're a creative writing guy from Florida <laughs> yeah. who runs away from the humidity Florida. and whatnot uh, from Florida, yeah. goes to Alaska far as way as you can, not knowing that it's going to take you into the coffee world. Right. It sort of lands in your lap. How did you know that you were going to... Be good at all of this.
1: Oh, um, you know, that's that's a. There's a funny question. Uh, you know, uh, I was uh, God, I, my I was a small business person of the year for State Alaska. When was that? <laughs> oh, 1993. Look at that. I looked at my a little more. Um, you know, it was kind of like boy wonder because uh, the way the business grew up and all that kind of stuff. And I remember somebody somebody asking me about that in a similar kind of manner. Like, how did you know you weren't going to fail? And my response was, I didn't know I could succeed. Mm. I was, I, I was kind of driven by a vision. That's all that really mattered. Uh, I had no, uh, I had no in, uh, inclination that it would blow up the way it did. Uh, that it would succeed. And in fact, this operation here in Denver is intentionally small. You know, because we, I want it to be small enough to manage. This is a lifestyle rather than. Uh, you know, we you know we are not act- interested in becoming the next biggest roaster. Um, we we're only interested in doing what we're doing and, and make you know we can we make a good living out of it and that's fine. It works it works well and I'm not freaking out about how lever- over leveraged we are you know gonna feed the beast. You know, the business everything's paid for. The staff are well paid. We uh you know we keep them as long as we can and
0: you know, there we are so but i didn't mean successful i meant how did mark overly know he was going to be good at tasting coffees oh, and working oh. working with like training people and sourcing product and you know all of the different things that your job ends up being about so like let's go back when you were young when you uh-huh. were growing up did you have a a palate yeah. a yeah, palate my that dad, was
1: no no it wasn't about that at all uh what it was is my dad was a small business person so i grew up in a small business and i saw the world as uh, through the eyes of small business so when i went to school in the bus it wasn't that we're just driving by I, I knew oh that's there's such such business that's that's family's business and i remember as a it, uh i had a train set as a kid and um i was a very loner kid very dorky and i have a dorky you know every, I, I know that that whole dorky, I was such a goofball growing up is a, is a meme now, but I do have bona fides on that. Uh, uh, but I was one of these kids that had a train set. But in my train set, I was the uh, industrial magnet. So every business was my, you know, I I made up all these different businesses. You know, typical goob goob kind of person. Um, you want to hear my goob story? Yeah. Okay. So like I said, everybody always says, oh, I was such a dork growing up, blah, blah, blah. Okay, here's my bona fides. Now, my dad, like I said, was a small business person, uh, and a lot of small businesses don't make any money. So he was a pilot on the side, and uh, he ended up, when I was in ninth grade, he got a job as the pilot for the band Heart. Oh, yeah, that's cool. For their dog and butterfly tour. And they were coming to Jacksonville, Florida, our hometown which meant I had backstage passes. I asked every girl I knew, not a one. <laughs> oh. So me and, my, me and my goob friend, we go, and then we go to the, go to the backstage. Don't let us
0: in. Get out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you weren't projecting <laughs> yeah. that cool rock look, I guess.
1: Uh, yeah, he, the guy goes, uh, how'd you get those passes? Was, my, dad's, my dad's the pilot. And he goes, what's your dad's name? I said, Bob Overly. And he goes, well, he never told, He never told me about you. And I'm like, he never told me
0: about you, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Well, you can't come back here. So we're not allowed backstage.
0: So you never got to meet Hart. No. Bummer, dude.
1: Ah, you know, <laughs> I was a goob. <laughs> so I guess so, to the long, to, the, to kind of get back to the, to pull that together. Uh, I always assumed I would own a business. Okay. That was my assumption. What that business would be, I couldn't tell you. Now, I was pretty good at watching television as a kid, so at one point I thought, I'll own a TV station because I can watch TV pretty good. You know, I had no idea. And so that's why when the business was offered to me when I was 25, I took it because that's my business. I remember telling Krista, my wife, you know, now my wife, I think we were were married yet. We were newlyweds. I think only a year married. I said, this is it. This is my chance I'm going to, this is, you know, they're offering this business to me. I'm taking it. And from there, it was just, how do I make this business work? So I was not a, uh, uh, I was not into taste tasting. That became a requirement for the job. And I I trained myself and got myself trained to be a taster.
0: When you say got myself trained, did you go to like some class? Yes.
1: Well, I, uh, the guy who invented our roaster uh, was my first trainer for tasting and a lot of a lot of what we are is uh, attributed to him his name was mike Sivitz. and he had a very specific he had a very specific taste profile for himself and i think every every coffee buyer every uh, coffee cupper uh, good ones at least end up with their own kind of sense of what they're looking for and but he really kind of instilled in me some of these early benchmarks of what i should expect out of coffee And then I had the opportunity to be around some some pretty top coffee cuppers in my early days, Uh, one of them being Mary Townsend, who went on to become the coffee buyer for Starbucks for a great number of years and established their connections. So uh, it really helped from there. And then I began uh, befriended uh, coffee importers, and so that's how I was able to kind of piggyback, hitchhike my way into the coffee-producing countries. I didn't go by myself. I went with coffee professionals and essentially learned what they were doing. And that's how I established those kind of connections and, and then how how to go about coffee coffee cupping and do profiling.
0: Do you have any other serendipitous sort of stories about how it all just came together? Because I kind of am picturing this fantasy league of coffee people all just converging somehow together to make this happen for you. Huh. You know, this roaster, this taster, this distributor.
1: Yeah, well, the roaster, like I said, is, again, it was just damn full luck because the roaster, the, Brad and Frederick had already bought the roaster. So when, when they left, I had to figure out, well, they, they taught me how to use the roaster and uh, they taught me how to use the espresso machine. But what happened is about six months into me running the place, first off, the espresso machine starts leaking everywhere and it needed work. And then the roaster started acting up. And so it was up to me to fix both of those things. And the roaster manufacturer was in Corvallis, Oregon. Mm -hmm. I had called him up and and talked to him about the roaster. And he said, well, what you really need to do is come down and I do a three-day intensive workshop. And I'll teach you everything from roasting and all that kind of stuff. So, okay, that's a good idea let me do that as far as the espresso machines were i had two in the rolodex back in the days when you had rolodexes Mm -hmm. there were two cards most of the machines had come out of san francisco the guys there were all first generation italians and i honestly could not understand a word they were saying (laughs) but there was another card from a folks in seattle so i called them up said hey um you know i'm in alaska we bought a couple of machines from you but I need to learn how to work on. I said, "Yeah, we can do a training. Once you come on down to Seattle, so I combined my trip to go to Seattle. Brad Frederick's former partner was living in Seattle, so he let me stay in his his apartment. And I spent my first week doing riding shotgun uh, with a, an espresso technician, learning how to work on espresso machines. Now, the interesting thing was is that that espresso machine distributor was. Their one of their big, their were their main client was this little company called Starbucks, and we were most of the time I was behind the bars of a Starbucks store, and I was working on these espresso machines there. And I was looking at these these Starbucks stores, like man, these guys, I think this is kind of the future of what coffee is going to be. Like this is again, this is long before Starbucks only had five stores at the time. I'm like, oh, this this is an interesting way that they're approaching it. And that weekend. The owner of that espresso company uh, said, okay, you know, so you're learning how to work on machines. What do you know about espresso itself? And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm all over that shit. You know, I, I um, you know, worked at the State Fair. We got that stuff done. And he goes, okay, why don't you come on on Saturday, and we'll just kind of go over espresso making. And so I show up, and he says, what do you know? I said, oh, you know, I got this. You know, I can – I got this. And he kind of points me to the machine. He goes, all right, make me an espresso. And the machine was a little different from the machine I had. And the grinder was different. And so I'm kind of fumbling around. And I start something. I can just see him out of the back of my corner of my eye. He's kind of shaking his head. And he just says, let's start from the beginning. And we spent the whole day. His name was Kent Baki. And Kent was the person who taught me what good espresso is and should be. And uh, so I owe all my espresso you know, background really to him because he's the one that kind of spurred it on. And like I said, I, the whole Seattle market showed me where the future of coffee was going, and so that by that point I was almost excited. I was like, "Screw Corvallis! I, I got to get back to Alaska and get you know get this." But I had already made the you know paid the money for the thing, so I get down to Corvallis for my three-day workshop, and it turns out this guy who made this roaster is a, a chemical engineer and probably the leading authority on coffee quality, and he completely changed the way I thought about coffee beans itself. So it was really a marrying of Mike Sivitz's uh, idea of coffee quality and coffee quality roast. And Kent Bakke, the way that you formulate espresso blends and what you're kind of looking for, that, that was really the, that spurred the entire company from there. And what made me focus strictly on espresso, uh, because now with, with restaurants, you know, you can buy whatever cheap-ass coffee you want. But if you've got an espresso machine, you need me. And that's how I could sell our espresso, take care, of the, take care of the espresso equipment and that kind of thing. So when the espresso revolution happened, I was just happened to be the guy who had all the, all the stuff. So that came about several years later when the, the whole wave, you know, Starbucks took off. And suddenly everybody wanted to get into an espresso business. I'd already done it as a as a a way of just survival you know because i couldn't sell coffee by itself, and we were just in a perfect kind of position to to kind of capitalize on that then uh once that company had grown coming here to denver like i said it was much more of a life my life my life was really out of control up there uh i had all the trappings of a successful business person but i honestly i was quite miserable because i I just yeah the, the business had was a steaming locomotive, and I was trying to steer it from the middle car. Mm. I would long since lost control of the, how the business was being. So this really became, gave me the opportunity to restart, reboot the whole thing, and then bring it back to my... Now, I have to say that there was a period of time that before that was to occur, the person who I had been traveling the most with in coffee-growing countries as, an, as a, an importer was courting me to take over his business mm-hmm. Yeah, as a uh, coffee supplier and for a year I did that and there were two reasons why I decided not to do that rather than going back and roasting. Uh, one was my father was a pilot uh, as, as a you know as I was mentioned growing up um, and so he was gone most of the time and I didn't want to do I didn't want to be an absentee father to my daughters and then secondly I met Andy who I'm sure you know Andy uh, my business partner
0: I don't think I've ever met Andy. Well, was, okay.
1: So Andy and he, he had moved to Denver about a year before I did with the intention of starting an espresso machine sales and service business here in Denver. We met each other and it's really because of him that I decided to, uh, to restart the company as an independent coffee roaster and kind of thing. So Andy's really the, uh, he's really the person that does all the hard work behind <laughs> the scenes. I get to take all the glory He's the one that does, he takes care of all the maintenance of the equipment. He takes care of the, um, the money, finances of the business. He keeps the whole business on track. In that regard, it allows me the freedom just to kind of do my little idealized vision bullshit.
0: Well, I love this about how you've met all these people and the network that you've created. I really can't stand people who think that they've done everything on their own and don't yeah. realize. <laughs> There's no such thing. Yeah, no, I, and they like to pretend it is, and that oh my they God. did everything.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I have, yeah. I, I'm full of stories, so if, you, if I may, I'll tell you another story. Please do. Um, when I was uh, in Alaska, because I was you know, the entrepreneur guy, they had invited me to the university to do a talk on entrepreneurship to this, this class of students. So I, I of course, did yes, because I was a ham. Promoting. I was always promoting. So I get there and I do my little dog and pony show about, you know, how great Kaladi is and how smart I am. And then they it opened up the questions and they start drilling me about, you know, how do I do my risk analysis or blah blah all these kind of things. And I finally I, well, wait, wait a second. What what class is this? And they said, it's entrepreneurship. And I said, So you're studying entrepreneurs or you want to be entrepreneurs? And they said, Oh, we want to be entrepreneurs. And I What level class is this? Oh, it's, you know, 700 and blah, blah, blah. Like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. If any of y'all were actually entrepreneurs, you would have dropped out of school before your sophomore year and go chasing after your dream of whatever because you're going to change the world. Entrepreneurs don't, you don't study to be an entrepreneur. You are a genetic defect that makes you an entrepreneur. And being an entrepreneur is like suddenly deciding that you can fly. So you find a big cliff to jump off of and you jump off the cliff and you slam down on the ground and you think, huh, I did something wrong. So you go up there and you do it again and you do it again and you do it again and about the thousandth time you do it. Out of sheer circumstance, a, a heat wind comes up from below and lifts you as you're, as you're falling to the ground and you land safely. And an entrepreneur is the person who lands safely and said, I did that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It, you know, I, I can't tell you how many people I've met who've tried to do things. Uh, they've had ideas for businesses. Admittedly, they were stupid. You know, they, they've all tried to do these things, but things didn't line up. And in my case, I, have, I usually was kind of like just ahead of the, of the game, as it were, and just stupid enough not to realize I, I shouldn't be doing this. I just would stick it out and kept at it. And that's really the reason why we're successful is that I'm just too stupid to, to think of something else to do.
0: No, you are, would you say you're obsessed with coffee? Uh, hmm. Am I obsessed with coffee? No,
1: I am a trade cupper. I know what I like. I know what I'm looking for. I do not spend an over amount of time. Uh, now, I keep myself up to date on reading, you know, coffee trends and that kind of stuff. But I largely don't concern myself with what's going on outside uh, the world, you know, in the coffee world itself, unless it directly impacts our supply chain. I am obsessed. I, I am... How... Uh, am I obsessed? I guess that's not a good question to really ask me. Um, I'm sure people might consider myself obsessive, uh, but I do... I, ex- I have expectations of what, I, what the coffee should be, and I will...
0: You have exacting standards more than Yeah, obsession. exactly. Right, right. Okay.
1: And that's that's what, I, if it, it either meets the standards or it doesn't, if it doesn't, I'm not interested. And you cannot convince me any otherwise, I'm just not interested. Uh, that's why for a lot of these new hipster coffee places, I'm just not interested um, in that style of coffee. It, I don't like it. Can't drink it. I don't want to be their friends. Hmm. I'm not going to I'm not gonna talk to them about it. Uh, I'm not going to argue with them. I don't want to.
0: So normally when I'm talking to people on the podcast, things come up and it reminds me of a book that I've read and I say, hey, have you read this book? Or <laughs> I ask quite pointedly, like what right. books helped you along the way? But you know what? It's yeah. funny. And I, I do want to get there. But what's funny about this conversation is that instead of a book, I'm picturing a particular episode of Anthony Bourdain's No Reservations. I don't know if oh, you ever yeah. yeah. I, I I've I haven't watched a lot of them because there's like a billion of yeah, them. Yeah. But right. I love them. Yeah. 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 So there's he an episode really, he oh I, I know, him. I miss him. Yeah, there was yeah. an episode where he went to the Pacific Northwest and the theme of it is is how obsessive these people are that they work on their craft, you know, like pizza making or whatever it is. Right, right, right. And he's like, "This is just a character trait, yeah, H- kind of of an entrepreneur, kind of a someone who's a restaurateur or a cook or whatever." But when you sort of drill down, they are obsessed with coffee or pizza or just right, right. this one best right, version right. that they, yeah, whatever. far firewood. Yes, and how to stack it.
1: <laughs> yeah, and how to stack <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, anyway,, uh, you might want to check that out. yeah, so now to be circuitous myself, you know, I didn't want this to be a one note type of a uh, interview where we only talk about coffee, even though that'd be the main thing. So, I did a little um stalking you on Facebook. oh, uh. no. oh. <laughs> <laughs> you found my other obsession cars cars, yes, um, yeah,
1: yes, very much so it's true
0: so I noticed that you do post some books up there, and I thought, oh, that's good. I like this guy, but then uh. I saw the I saw the car thing, particularly yes. the British cars. Yes, and I yes, have to- yeah. That's my father again.
1: We, we all have to life my, yeah, my father, when I was growing up, my dad, we always had some unusual car. Um, the ones that stuck out to me, he had a couple of Jaguars. And as, as a young man, I just thought those cars were about the coolest thing ever. And so it always kind of stuck, stuck with me.
0: So you're from Jacksonville and you had Jaguars. So that's awesome. Oh yeah. I didn't mean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But very few people will even have heard of this. I think you'll appreciate it. My husband is actually from Catrum, England.
1: Well, is that right? I had a Catrum. You had a Catrum car. I did. I built it here. And in the first year we were open in uh at DU, I would park that car out front. Isn't that hilarious?
0: Yeah. And you but- sold it?
1: I had to because uh, that was, so I had to cater when I was still sort of officially with the Alaska, I was still, you know, Alaska Claudia. And when I sold the business up in Alaska, you know, I was staring, staring at a um, an unknown amount of time without an income. Mm. So all toys had to go. So the caterum had to go as well. So I did sell the catering.
0: Uh, I'm glad that you at least knew what I was talking about (laughs) because he, you know, he has to explain some people are like, no, never heard of that. And he's like, come on. It's the only thing we're famous for.
1: (laughs) Well, it's a good thing to be famous for too. Uh, But anyway, yes, you would, it does uh, resign you to other nerds that only know that kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 uh, Yeah.
0: So what kind of cars do you have right now? So I, I only have, uh, I have two cars and they're, they're both toys.
1: One is a, an FJ Cruiser, a, a manual transmission FJ Cruiser, which I'm sure if you've seen on our Facebook, we take out and because, you know, where, the, where it says only high clearance four-wheel drives from here on out, that's where mm-hmm. I want to go, you know? Yeah. So we have that vehicle and I've always had a, a small, a, 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 always had a British sports car. Uh, my first one was up in Alaska. Uh, I worked when I, before uh, going to the University of Alaska, and the whole reason why I was known as a sales guy is because I worked for a car dealership. I was just, when I was 19 years old, I was selling cars at a, at a sure. Toyota dealership, and so I um, developed a, uh, an affinity even for Toyotas. But like I said, uh, I have a genetic defect that um, sure. makes me um, desire uh, British British cars. So my very first one was this MGB that I bought. Uh, was my very first uh, car. And just, it was a rust bucket, but a great, great car. And that ended up becoming a string of different MGs. And in fact, when we moved here, I had, oh, see, when we moved to, before we moved to Denver, uh, I had an Austin Healy Sprite, which I autocrossed. Um, oh, cool. I had an MGC GT, that's a six cylinder MG, and an MGA coupe and a Porsche 928 which was my daily driver in in Alaska along with a Volkswagen camper that was just my car then Krista had her car those are my cars yeah so I'd always kind of had a a shit ton of cars Uh, I I ended up getting rid of everything uh, except the MGA ended up underneath my brother's deck in Alaska and just kind of sat there and uh, when I came down here I brought the Austin Healey with me and um, the, the Austin Healey, I'd, um, I bought and kind of did my own kind of DIY restoration, not very good because I was more interested in the end rather than, I didn't want it to be, a, I just wanted to race the car. That's all I cared about doing. And I kind of wore the car out and decided, well, I don't want to rebuild the same car all over again. Uh, what I want is more performance, but not more car. And the only way to get more performance without getting more car was a Caterham Super 7. And there happened to be a dealer here in Denver. So I bought a Caterham and built it here in Denver. Sold the Austin Healey for the engine and transmission for the Caterham. Uh, but then, like I said, that's, at that point is when I decided to sell the business and I needed to sell the Caterham. And there was a couple of few years where I didn't get to have uh, a toy, but I had the MGA. My brother bought the MGA down to me. And the Caterham was the car that kind of taught me how to drive oh. and it made me fully appreciate the possible genius in engineering. And especially because you're building the car, so you're seeing how the car was put together. Yeah. And I just found it quite fascinating that the person who designed the Caterham was originally a Lotus. So, and Caterham was a Lotus dealer. So Lotus, Lotus was a company. Who was very famous in Formula One and racing, and um, their dictum was to um, you you uh, simplify and then add lightness. So they were famous for winning races with cars half the size of their competition. Back back in the day, they were up against Ferrari uh, in Formula One, and they I forget what the quote was, but uh, they were asking you know why is it that Lotus outperforms Ferrari? And uh, the Lotus people said, well, Ferrari starts with a heavy car and they start removing weight until the car is competitive. At Lotus, we start with a piece of paper and we add weight until we finish the race.
0: Oh, that's a good so line. they're always
1: known to be very fast but fragile automobiles. Uh, but just in, just engineering genius, Colin Chapman, the guy behind Lotus, was, a, was an engineer and he always, he always came up with these very creative ways of, making the car lighter, but yet more capable performance out of it with, with minimal amounts of uh, structure uh, to the car. And it was just brilliant that way. And that's the Super 7 was their first kind of knockout car. And they also kind of figured out that if there's an at the time in England had a tax on cars, but not a tax on car parts. Oh. So they said, well, what constitutes us selling you a car versus car parts? Yeah. And they figured out the, the minimum number of financial tra- transactions you needed to make to make it a car part. So that's how they, they sent you a box, three boxes. And you got the box of, of chassis, your engine and transmission, and your, you know, one other set of, they make the three financial transactions. Therefore, it's a car parts, not a car. And you assembled it yourself. And they, they did that for a number of years. Uh, then they went on to different cars. And they decided to uh, cease production of the seven because they were moving on, but their dealer in Caterham said, no, 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 people want this car, let us keep building it. And that's how Caterham came to continue building Super 7s. Well, that car may be obsessed with Lotus cars. And so this, just this last year, I kept the MG because it's always been a good little, fun little car. But from a performance standpoint, MGs are quite dogged <laughs> underperformers. Yeah, rugged and reliable, but pretty pretty stodgy when it comes to. You could drive that car flat out, and nobody would ever notice. (laughs) So I I decided this last year that I this was a year I I wanted to to uh, to get a Lotus and there's a couple of specific models I was uh, interested in, and one had come up for sale, but it meant me selling the MG before I could buy that one. So I put my MG up for sale. Sold it, but the other car had sold by the time got mine. But uh, I found uh, another one on the Lotus forums because I became obsessed with finding. And as it turned out, there was a guy in California that had one, and so I bought bought that one. And uh, it's it's a freaking brilliant car, uh, and being completely unknown, so nobody knows what the thing is. Um, but that suits me just fine. I love it.
0: When you first started talking about the Caterham car, I think you said about it that that's how you learn to drive or it made yeah, you better. Dri- yeah. What does that mean as an adult? What does it mean to learn how to drive? Because you were already driving for years. Well,
1: uh, but I was autocrossing. So autocrossing is is a, uh, a form of racing against the clock. It's individual, individual people. against. So I, the Austin Healy taught me how to get the most out of our. The Super 7 taught me how to drive. The Super 7 is essentially a thinly disguised race car that somehow is road legal uh, (laughs) for very dubious reasons. Um, But uh, I used to take it out to, uh, at the time, Second Creek Raceway was open, and you could do non-competitive racing with it. And so I was able to, to go up against other cars and the Super 7 is really the car that taught me how to, how to drive, how to really get the most out of a car. And the Super, Super 7 rewarded good driving techniques. So you really learned what the car was capable of doing and what you were capable of, of doing. And you could beat everybody. It was, it was great fun.
0: <laughs> so I am totally not a car person, which makes this really funny. So you're talking and the two things I'm thinking about is, of course, Ford versus Ferrari, uh, which is a great movie. But also, yeah, have yeah. you read The Art of Racing in the Rain? No, I haven't. Uh, well, now I'm going to have to see. I have, I'm going to have to right? tell you to go read it and then tell me, come yeah, back right? and tell me what you thought about yeah. it.
1: Um, yeah, it's funny. I, I haven't read that. I do, I do read you know, a number of car books, but they're often kind of obscure.
0: And nonfiction. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. I read, I mostly read fiction, though.
0: Yeah, I, I saw that on yeah. Facebook. I think the only book I've ever read about, that had anything to do with cars at all, uh, definitely about racing, was The Art of Racing in the Rain. And really, I probably read it because of the dog, the, I don't know if you know, yeah, the, the yeah. dog is the narrator,
1: yeah, I remember hearing the premise, but I remember...
0: It's a tearjerker, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for your time. I should let you get back to work. Sounds like things have been getting busier over there. Yeah, it happens here. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it was my pleasure.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for doing this. I look forward to seeing you in person. Oh, let's end on this little fun note. So I don't know how you were holed up, how long you were holed up, you know, at the beginning of COVID, um, you know, trying to run businesses and everything, but from a from a person who doesn't have to leave the house point of view, you know, I'm up in Conifer and I'm like, I'm missing Denver, I'm missing going out and doing things. Right, right. So when we finally Decided, okay, you know, we're gonna go down, we're gonna hit a few places, try to have a day out, but not, you know, really right. interact yeah, yeah. with Safely. anybody. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the first thing I did was I called Kaladi to see if they were open to yes. doing takeout. Yeah. Yeah. And that first sip after having, I mean, I can, I can make decent coffee at home, but it's not the same thing. No. Um, no. So our, our equipment is very expensive. It is. <laughs> as I found out when I tried to source it, but um, yeah. so that, that first sip on that first day out was glorious.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, as far as my own COVID experience, uh, we, we stayed in, uh, we adapted and we kept everybody on staff and we kept, you know, there was a few, a few folks that wanted to take emergency pay and not work, but everybody who wanted to work, we kept, kept on and we just made it so that we would stay safe uh, and just kept at it. So we've done, uh, you know, we're down a little bit, you know, overall, but um, we're doing quite, quite well. So okay. we're, But our main concern was to keep everybody employed and, and working. So that was our, you know, as long as we succeed at that, we were, we were happy.
0: Well, excellent. I've enjoyed talking to you and I thank you for being on and making time for me.
1: Yay. Thanks. Yes. It was my, my pleasure. I had a lot of fun. I get to talk about my favorite subject, me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that, that always makes a good guest. Right. <laughs> Well, how was that revelers? I thought it was great. The only thing I didn't really love is that we had so much to talk about that I didn't get to do some of the follow-up questions that I wanted to. I saw the clock and I knew time was up and I had to stop asking all the questions I wanted to, which is such a bummer when you have to say goodbye. The other thing to know for the folks who don't look at all the texts that I put up on the website or on the different apps that shows, you know, the episode information, what you'll want to know is that Mark has given all of us revelers who have listened to this episode, or just looked online, uh, a special code to get his fantastic coffee. You get 20% off now through the end of September, 2020. The code is REVEL20, and I hope you use it. And I hope you love it. And let me know what you think. Thanks for listening.